Welcome to the weekly podcast of Bright Star Bible Church. Thank you for joining us. As you listen to the proclamation of God's Word, our prayer for you is the same prayer Jesus prayed for His church in John 17, 17. Lord, sanctify them in truth. Your Word is truth. We're continuing today in 1 Corinthians chapter 15, and uh, Paul's theme in this whole chapter is the resurrection. And uh, the next section runs from verse 35 to 49. So beginning at verse 35, would you stand with me? Um, If you're able, stand with me. And we're going to honor God's word by standing and reading the word of God. Again, that is 1 Corinthians chapter 15. We're going to begin in verse 35. This is the word of God. But someone will say, how are the dead raised? And with what kind of body do they come? You fool. That which you sow does not come to life unless it dies. And that which you sow, you do not sow the body which is to be, but a bare grain, perhaps of wheat or of something else. But God gives it a body just as he wished, and to each of the seeds a body of its own. All flesh is not the same flesh, but there is one flesh of men, another flesh of beasts, and another flesh of birds, and another of fish. There are also heavenly bodies and earthly bodies, but the glory of the heavenly is one, and the glory of the earthly is one. There is one glory of the sun, and another glory of the moon, and another glory of the stars. For star differs from star in glory, so also is the resurrection of the dead. It is sown a corruptible body, it's raised an incorruptible body, it's sown in dishonor. It's raised in glory. It's sown in weakness, and it's raised in power. It's sown a natural body, and it's raised a spiritual body. If there is a natural body, there is also a spiritual body. So also it is written, the first man, Adam, became a living soul. The last Adam became a life-giving spirit. However, the spiritual is not first, but the natural, and then the spiritual. The first man is from the earth, earthy. The second man is from heaven. As is the earthly, so also are those who are earthy. As is the heavenly, so also are those who are heavenly. And just as we have borne the image of the earthy, we will also bear the image of the heavenly. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, I pray that you would open our eyes to the truth of your word here uh, in this glorious chapter on the resurrection. We thank you for your word. We ask that our eyes would be opened. And Lord, give us the courage to then align our lives and our hearts and what we believe with the truth of your word. We pray this in the glorious name of Jesus. Amen. You may be seated. So just starting off here, uh, Paul has spent the entirety of the beginning of this uh, chapter, the whole first portion of this chapter, making a case for bodily resurrection. And you wouldn't think that was going to be a really big deal, but there are reasons why um, it was a big deal back then. And it begins, he begins with two questions. And it's obvious that the questions Paul posed are coming from skeptics, if you will, those who perhaps in the church at Corinth doubt the resurrection. He says, question number one, how are the dead raised? Question number two, with what kind of body do they come? And I know you've all heard the quote about there's no such thing as a dumb question. Well, apparently Paul does not ascribe 
to that thinking because his response is, you fool, okay? It's a, a pretty sharp rebuke coming from Paul, but a proper rebuke for those who call themselves believers in Christ who don't believe in the bodily resurrection. I want to first give you an overview of what the Bible actually says, uh, the promises in regard to the redemption of the body. In Romans 8, 23, you don't have to go there if you don't want. You can jot it down if you're taking notes. And I would encourage everyone to take notes if you have the opportunity. And throughout the week, maybe you'll have an opportunity to review some of these. That's really how you get it in you and, and, and just you think on it, you meditate on it. But Romans 8, 23 says that we are groaning, waiting desperately for the redemption of our bodies. The immaterial part of us, okay? So we hear scripture talk about the soul and the spirit, sometimes interchangeably. Sometimes it actually designates the difference between the soul and spirit, but that's the immaterial part of us. And that is redeemed uh, in our justification and our sanctification, but our, our body is to be redeemed as well, the material part of us. So we've already been spiritually redeemed, and we call that justification. We're being redeemed in our, our mind, our will, our emotions, sometimes connected with the soul, okay? And that is our, that's our sanctification. That's the word we use for that. But then there's still this future promise of the redemption of our body, and that's glorification, okay? And 2 Corinthians chapter 5, the Apostle Paul is alluding to the fact that the immaterial part of us existing without the body is naked, or as we like to say in this part of the world, naked, okay? He says in verse 4 of that chapter, Indeed, while we are in this tent, we groan, being burdened, because we do not want to be unclothed, but to be clothed, so that what is mortal will be swallowed up in life. So this tent, this body, is breaking down, and eventually it will fail in some way or another. But what awaits is a body described as a building from God, not made with hands. This is a body for eternity. And it seems if we just existed in eternity in our immaterial form, we would just be naked spirits floating around. But God designed Adam, remember, as a spiritual being. And he had a body. I mean, he was a physical being, and he had a body. And that's the Lord's design for the future, is to redeem all that Adam lost in the fall. And this obviously includes a new body being uh, reconnected, reunited with our spirit or the immaterial part of us. So remember when Lazarus died, uh, Jesus consoled them in their sorrow and their anger as is natural to deal with death in that way. And they were in their emotions uh, dealing with their brother's death. And in John eleven twenty one, John eleven twenty one, there's this conversation that takes place between Martha, the brother of Lazarus, and Jesus. And Martha says, Lord, if only you had been here, my brother would not have died. And even now I know that whatever you ask of God, whatever you ask of your father, he's going to give you. And Jesus replied to her, your brother will rise again. And of course, Martha replied, I know that he'll rise again in the resurrection on the last day. Now, what this tells us about Martha is that she was a good student, that she knew what the Old Testament had said about the bodily resurrection, and she had also listened to the words of Jesus about the resurrection. And Jesus then responded by saying, I am the resurrection and the life. 
He who believes in me will live even if he dies. And this is in the context of his bodily death, okay? Not his, not a spiritual death, but his bodily death. So as we sur- uh, survey scripture, we find that it often speaks of the promise of the resurrection for the believer. What does John 6:44 say? John 6:44. Jesus says, "No one can come to me unless the Father who sent me draws him, and I will raise him up on the last day." In John 5:28, John 5:28, Jesus says this, "Do not marvel at this, for an hour is coming in which all who are in the tombs will hear his voice and will come forth." those who did the good deeds to resurrection of life and those who committed the evil deeds to a resurrection of judgment. And what I'm getting at here is that the doctrine of the physical resurrection of the body is not a new thing. And it wasn't a new thing uh, in the church at Corinth as well. And I've just given you a few examples of, of some of the occurrences in scripture where the resurrection was spoken of by our Lord himself. So considering that the resurrection will take place As promised, we believe that that's going to happen. What can we then expect of our new bodies, of our resurrected bodies? What does the Bible tell us about what that form of existence will be? Well, in that day, in Jesus' day, and, and shortly after, many of the Jewish rabbis taught that whatever form you actually died in, whatever form you were in when you passed away, that would be the form in which you would be resurrected. So if you died when you were 98 years old, you would be resurrected as a 98-year-old. That stinks. That's, that sounds terrible, right? It wouldn't be fun at all. But this is, this is precisely why the Greeks had such a problem with this and why uh, probably folks there at the church in Corinth were struggling with the truth is because they mocked the idea as Greeks. They, they didn't believe in the resurrection. It was an offensive thing to them to consider that you were going to be tied to the body. I mentioned a few weeks ago uh, the uh, Celsus. He called it, quote, the hope of worms, that you would be resurrected in this old, corrupt body. That, that, that's no hope at all, right? To them, the body was a prison. And death meant that they could shed this prison and move on to the next level, the higher form of existence. And so if those Greeks, those converted Christians at Corinth were in any way subjected to what the rabbis were teaching about being raised in the same form as you died, well, then you can see why they would have a major issue with it. It was that was the attitude with some of those folks at the church at Corinth. Paul then spent the time making the case to the Corinthian church that they need to let go of their old pagan beliefs regarding the resurrection. Well, why would he do that? Why would he tell them to do that? Well, because he makes this case. The gospel falls apart without the resurrection. The gospel is worthless. It's meaningless. And he goes through chapter 15, verses 12 through 15. If Christ is not raised, nobody will be raised. And everyone who's preached the resurrection is actually a liar. And Christians are still lost. And of all men, they are most to be pitied. Like he leaves us in a hopeless place. Okay? But they do believe Christ. These Corinthian Christians believed Christ because of the resurrection. That's what they put their faith in in the first place. Hearing of Christ, his message, the gospel. 
realizing that he conquered death and he raised from the dead. So if you believe Jesus Christ is raised and that is a fact, then it is also a fact there will be a resurrection for all believers and the gospel itself is the most important truth given to mankind. So now that we can all scripturally affirm that the resurrection is true and that we will be raised in new bodies, then these skeptics then, if they believe then, since they believe, then they ask, okay then, how does this actually happen? How are the dead raised? And, and the follow-up question with what kind of body do they come? I know for a fact uh, myself that I've thought often about this, um, if you've ever thought about someone who's been cremated or whatever, you think about, well, how is their body going to be reanimated? Well, that's kind of the thing that's going on here. Um, these skeptics at Corinth, they had questions as well. Uh, what about a body that was drowned at sea and in, in a shipwreck and it's been eaten up by all the little fishies? Like what happens to that guy? What about bodies that were burned up in a fire and completely incinerated with nothing left? What about bodies that are completely destroyed and their ashes scattered to the wind and the wind just carries them and carries pieces of their their former body all over the place what about that what how does that work right well guys <laughs> we're talking about god here we're talking about the creator of the universe the same one who created all things by this power of his word the same god that will incinerate all creation with fire in order to make all things new again he outfitted, he will outfit and design a new heaven and a new earth and new bodies for eternity, to last eternally. And if you remember in Acts 26, verse 8, Acts 26, verse 8, Paul asks King Agrippa in light of this, why is it considered unbelievable among all of you if God does raise the dead? Why is this so hard to understand the resurrection of the body is a unique doctrine to Christianity. And so the question, you know, how can the body, how will it reassemble itself after it has been buried in the earth? Bones scattered on the ocean floor, our flesh, you know, we turn back to dust over a period of time. How are the dead raised up? And if they're raised up, what kind of body will be given? And of course, Paul gives this very compassionate and winsome answer there in verse 36. He says, you fool, you fool. I, you know, we might say, what are you, an idiot? You know, like something like that. The fact that you're asking these questions in light of who God actually is, it actually calls your intelligence into question and whether or not you've thought through these things. And Paul rebukes whoever asked these snide, unanswerable questions pretty sharply, and he puts them in their place. Their questions seem to be something that really a lot of us folks like to do when we wish to prove a point or call a specific truth into question. They play gotcha games. They play gotcha games with Scripture. And what we really need to understand is that we're very limited in our capacity to understand God's sovereignty his omniscience, his power, um, his all of that. His ways are infinitely above our understanding. And what a fool's errand it is to try and explain God's infinite and eternal attributes using only human logic. It's just impossible. There's no way to do it. 
It's even more ridiculous than if we were out deep sea fishing and we, and we caught a fish on the bottom of the ocean and we took the time to reel it all the way up and we got it up on the boat and then we said, okay, fish, explain to me the mysteries and the vastness of the cosmos. A fish would have no idea. Well, you have no idea either. You are a sentient being. God is omniscient. He has revealed things in his word that we're to study and hide in our hearts. And he's given us what we're supposed to know. By no means does it mean that you, that the mind of Christ means that you know everything that God knows. That is just silly, okay? So, when we try to do that, when we try to use the logic of men, we just are really just revealing that we're operating in the foolishness of men. And Paul here, though, in his spirit-inspired understanding of both all of Scripture and man's eternal destiny, he has no issue at all with this truth of the resurrection. He's got no problems with it at all. And in order to answer these questions uh, that had found their way into this Corinthian church, it was causing confusion. Paul walks us through four reasons, or uh, I guess you could say them reasons, or gives four answers, if you will. First, he uses an analogy of the resurrection, and he does so with the analogy of a seed. So let's look there in verses 36 to 38. That which you sow does not come to life unless it dies. And that which you sow, you do not sow the body which is to be, but a bare grain, perhaps of wheat or something else. But God gives it a body just as he wished, and to each of the seeds of a body of its own. So I'm going to paraphrase a bit here and try to clarify this for you because sometimes the repetitive nature and some of the wording used is often difficult to follow. Uh, so just in this moment, what he's saying is you don't bury a plant and reap a plant, okay? You're not going to grab an apple tree and throw an apple tree with no fruit on it, no seeds or anything in the ground and an apple tree grow up in its place, okay? That might happen in Narnia, but it doesn't happen here. Um, that seed is put into the ground, it's buried it's, uh, it, it passes from its previous form. It virtually disintegrates in the ground. That little seed disintegrates in the ground. It dies. And when you hold a seed in your hand, it looks lifeless. Have you ever, look, have you ever stared at a seed? There's nothing about that. It doesn't move around. It doesn't wiggle. It doesn't grow. It doesn't do anything. It looks like it, it, could, it might as well be a rock. It's just a piece of whatever it is, Okay. And when it rises, though, it rises in a form or in a body that's different in every way than the form of the seed that was sown when it died in the ground. It comes up in a completely different form. And when you hold an acorn in your hand, I know you've probably thought about this. You plant an acorn in the ground. It's hard to imagine that years down the road that acorn is going to grow into this huge mighty oak tree you know that you can't even put your arms around it's a completely different form and that tree exists because of that tiny little acorn that was buried in the ground so paul is saying our bodies are buried and they disintegrate and dissolve but they will rise again in a completely different form so why is that so hard to understand fool that's what he's saying. When my body is buried, it will remain there until the immaterial part of me, the part of me that defines who I am, will be reunited in the resurrection, as I said before. 
with a new body, I will be the exact same person I was, except now fully sanctified and in a new, different, glorified form. In John 12, we see the same analogy referring to Jesus' death. John 12, verse 23, Jesus says, The hour has come for the Son of Man to be glorified. Truly, truly, I say to you that unless a grain of wheat falls into the earth and dies, it remains alone, but if it dies, it bears much fruit. It applied to Christ as well. Think about it. Because of His death, think about the massive eternal harvest as the first fruits of his death, burial, and resurrection. Think about the, the, just the massive harvest that's going to come from Christ's finished work. Amen? So if someone in the Corinthian church was saying they don't believe because they don't understand how it would be possible, but Paul takes it down to a very simple understanding of seed time and harvest, something that that agrarian society was very used to. It. They see it all the time, every year. In the parable in Mark 4, Jesus says the farmer plants and goes to sleep and doesn't understand how the crop grows. And today, scientists will even tell you when they look at the, the biology or the physiology of a seed, they have no clue what happens in there that actually makes that. They, they have theories, as they always do, but, but that's a miracle. That's just a miracle. And so... Um, the resurrection, Paul says, will be the same. Out of the old form comes a completely new form. Will be the same person, the same life, the same personality, but of new eternal substance. An infinite form with a dynamic new capacity to worship Christ forever and ever and ever. Last year, I had a really hard time with my garden, and I love to garden, but last year was a complete and total bust, and it started out bad because um, I dropped some seeds, and they mixed together, and, and so I'm trying to figure out what seeds were what, and I'm not sure if you guys are gardeners or not, but seeds don't come with labels on them. The, when you're looking at them in your hand, it's really difficult, especially different kinds of pumpkin seeds or different kinds of tomato plants. It's like you have no clue what they are. The only way you're going to know what that is is by planting it in the ground and waiting for it to come up and bear fruit. Okay? But verse uh, 38 alludes to that truth. He says, God gives it a body just as he wished, and to each of the seeds a body of its own. God knows what it's going to be. We don't know yet, but God knows what it's going to be. Uh, I, I find it kind of a fun uh, thing to do to, to sit around and ponder what it might be like to live in our new bodies. But we know that all of that is in God's hands, and He's going to do according to what He wills and what He wishes. And God's pretty creative, and He's done a really, really incredible job so far with everything that I've seen in the world. And, and this was actually the second, uh, second kind of existence after the flood you know it was completely different before that and it's still just gorgeous and beautiful so first the seed analogy then secondly he begins to describe the body itself verses 39 to 42 all flesh is not the same flesh but there is one flesh of men another flesh of beasts another flesh of birds and another of fish animals bodies have various types of skin uh, some feathers and some scales, 
There are various kinds of meat, right? We've got our chicken, our fish, our pork, and our beef. Can I get an amen? And that's all pretty simple stuff, right? Paul is saying there are various forms of body here, bodies here on earth. And if you look at the variation of those, it's incredible. Okay, there's, you just look at the different uh, forms of, uh, of beasts and birds and reptiles and all those different things. And it's incredibly creative. All different kinds of flesh. But God, he's, uh, I'm sorry, Paul is saying it shouldn't be difficult for us then to grasp that in the resurrection we will have a completely different kind of flesh. God is not limited in any way to one form of flesh. There's no limit. So we shouldn't doubt that God will give us a completely different glorified body. Then in verse 40 he says, There are also heavenly bodies and earthly bodies, but the glory of the heavenly is one, and the glory of the earthly is another. There is one glory of the sun, another glory of the moon, and another glory of the stars, for for star differs from star in glory. Now, when we talk about earthly bodies, we're talking about things that are on this earth. And you guys have traveled, many of you have traveled. There are mountains, just gorgeous mountains. There are deserts. Uh, We have beaches when we drive to the ocean. Uh, The plants, uh, everything that we see around us, different shapes, sizes, colors, textures, and so on. But when you go outside of this earth, you find things that are very different outside of this earth. I'm not speaking from experience. We have to take people's word for it. The heavenly bodies, the sun, the moon, the stars, and all of the other planets... And as far as our mind can comprehend, those things just keep going and going and going. As scripture says, he stretches out the heavens like a curtain. We, we, when we look up at the night sky, the perception we have is that space is infinite, that it has no boundary, and it's just filled with planets and stars. And Paul is saying here that each and every one of those planets and stars have its own kind of glory. And the word glory here is not talking about like God's glory. It's talking about a manifestation. It's got its own manifestation. Um, when Jesus manifested a glimpse of his glory on the Mount of Transfiguration, he revealed a light that was emanating from inside himself, and he began to glow like a light bulb, you know, and got, his clothes became brilliant white, and he shined like the sun in the middle of the day. So he was revealing a glimpse of his glory. And so Paul here is speaking of this manifestation. The sun has a a certain glory. The moon has a certain glory. The stars have a certain glory. And of course, from down here, they're all each revealed differently. When you look into the sky, you see the glory of the sun. And I would just encourage you not to stare at it too long. You see the glory manifested on the moon. Of course, it's borrowed glory. It's reflected light from its light source. All of our glory is borrowed too. Any glory that we have in us is borrowed from the Lord. It all is supposed to reflect Him. But what about the stars? They just look like little fireflies stuck up in that big bluish black thing up there, right? And we've discovered that there are variations in the stars. And one scientist wrote this, quote, Like flowers, the stars have their own colors. When you look upward and you glance, all of them gleam white, he says, like frost crystals, but single out 
any one of these for observation and you will find a subtle spectrum of color in every star. The quality of their light is determined by their temperatures. And their temperatures all vary. In the December sky, you will see uh, Aldebaran. It will appear as a pale rose. Rigel will be bluish white. Betelgeuse, orange, to topaz yellow. And so it goes. So verse 42 says, So also is the resurrection of the dead. Paul tells us here that God can create any kind of body he chooses to. It's all within the realm of his possibility. Why then is it so hard to believe he could create a resurrection body vastly different from this one and vastly different like the stars from one another? Every body, each and every one will manifest in a variation of his creative genius. And I believe it's likely that the eternal state will be dynamic in nature. And here's what I mean by that. It won't be static. It won't be still. We won't all be standing there in a cloud, bored, just trying to figure out what to talk about or what to do. Like, well, here we are. This is it. We made it. And we're all just kind of hanging out in, in the clouds. That is not, if that's your vision of what heaven's going to be like, you need to throw that in the trash. Now, here's the thing. We will not be omniscient. We will not be omniscient like God. I believe we will actually continue to grow in our knowledge of Him in eternity. Uh, each moment will be an opportunity uh, to manifest His glory and bask in His infinite love. It's not going to be a static thing where, that we get bored, ever. But not exactly in the same way in that moment as we did the moment before. And all throughout the eternal millennia, if you will, we get to reflect His eternal and infinite glory. Each of us will be unique just as a blade of grass, a single blade of grass right out here on the lawn is different than every other blade of grass on the face of the planet. Not one of us will be exactly the same. We'll each be different in our own resurrected bodies. We will be who we are, our personality just as you are, only made whole, sanctified fully, healed of all our weakness and security. So if you take one of those uh, personality tests, you're just going to be strengths all the way across, right? Um, you're just, it's, it, it's, it's all going to be good. Of course, you have to ponder, will we look the same as we do now? Will, be, will we be recognizable? Will people be able to see us in heaven and call our name? To quote Eric Clapton. Um, well, right now, we bear the marks of the consequences of fallenness and the marks of our own sin and choices. I'm aging. I like to say I'm kind of melting like ice cream. Seems like the years go on. It just, I just keep getting wider and shorter, it feels like. Um, in eternity, we're all going to look perfect. We're going to be flawless. But we'll still be recognizable because, because each of us will be one of a kind. And that's not only in our physical appearance, but also in, in the, the, who we are emanating from ourselves, radiating Christ's love, reflecting we're going to know one another. We'll know each other in heaven, as 1 Corinthians 13 says, we will know fully as we have been fully known. And it boggles the mind to think about the otherness 
of the eternal life ahead for us, the word satisfying comes nowhere close. It's going to be indescribable, like you simply cannot fathom what lies ahead. Now, verse 42a here, it says, so also is the resurrection of the dead. And that basically wraps up everything Paul wrote from verse 35 to 42. But, he, but here in verse 42, at the last part of it, Paul begins to contrast and compare the bodies and, or if you will, the seeds that will be buried with the resurrected form that will rise again. Here's 42b, starting there. It's sown a corruptible body. It's raised an incorruptible body. It's sown in dishonor. It's raised in glory. It's sown in weakness. It's raised in power. It's sown a natural body, but it's raised a spiritual body. If there's a natural body, there is also a spiritual body. Again, the the Jewish rabbis had been teaching that whatever form you were laid in the grave, that would be your resurrected form, and, and you can see why that would be offensive to them. The Christians in Corinth, with their former pagan beliefs, were perfectly fine with Jesus being resurrected. They believed that, and we know that they did because Paul mentions it at the beginning of this chapter. Um, But they didn't want to come back in their broken form. That did not sound fun to them or acceptable to them at all. Would you want to come back in your broken form? Yeah, absolutely not. So they were thinking they'd be stuck forever in the same decayed form, and no thanks, they said. I don't want any part of it. But Paul's assuring them that this new body will not be like the one we have now. This one's perishable. It's sown and buried in dishonor. It's falling apart. This body, the natural body, is weak. It is a blood-powered body. That's important to understand. Our bodies, our flesh now, are blood-powered bodies. They are susceptible to sickness and disease. And this body it truly is so very fragile. However, the one that we receive in the resurrection is imperishable. It'll be glorious. It will be powered not by blood, but by the spirit. It is a spiritual body. Our new body will be imperishable, incorruptible, undefiled. The Bible says fading, not away. As Peter put it, it will reflect God's glory. It's powerful. It's it's spiritual. And by the way, if um, there is a promise in Scripture of healing, a guarantee that by His stripes we are healed, it's an eschatological promise, okay? And when I say eschatological promise, I mean it's an end times promise, okay? It's not a promise that right now, if we operate in enough faith and we jump through the right hoops, that God is then obligated to heal us. That is not what the Bible teaches. And that teaching actually hurts so many desperate people. And it's a gross misinterpretation of what Scripture says. That's actually called an overrealized eschatology. Okay? They're taking promises of which God will fulfill in the end times, and they're pulling them into the present and claiming them for right now, insisting that God will fulfill him and teaching others that if you only have enough faith, God will heal you. It's guaranteed right now. That's, and that hurts people, folks. But when this body, think about it, when this body is healed temporarily, it's still dying. It's still going to die. Even if you get your healing right now today, 
you're still going to die. Just like Lazarus was raised from the dead, he still died again. He had to die twice, poor fellow. It's still corrupted. It's still weak. And fallenness has made us dishonorable. So here's what we have to do. We have to honor God's word by handling it properly. There are incredible promises for our future. And our time in this broken body and this fallen world, no matter what we go through, no matter what circumstances we face, it's temporary. It's the proving grounds. We do have faith, but we have faith unto death. Unless, of course, we're one of those very blessed folks who get to be caught up in the rapture. The grave is the final stop in the decaying process. The resurrection is going to change absolutely everything. Guaranteed, guaranteed, you will be eternally healed. You will, if you are in Christ, you will be eternally healed. And when we step into eternity and in our resurrected bodies, there will be no more death, no more sickness, no more sorrow, no more pain. Hallelujah. What a promise. We are raised in glory in a new, powerful, eternal form. And imagine our new body being able to travel through vast galaxies. Who knows? I mean, who knows? We will be satisfied and enjoy the newly remade earth, surpassing even the beauty of Eden, exploring the new creation. Imagine hiking up a mountain, never getting tired, never having to stop and rest. We won't have to eat, but we'll eat for fellowship and enjoyment. So we can hike a mountain and stop for a granola bar just to enjoy the fellowship and, and the view, right? Jesus, it's interesting that after the resurrection, every time you read about Jesus appearing, he was eating something. <laughs> I think that's awesome. John 3, 2 says, we will be like him when we see him as he is. We will be like him. So if his resurrected body is any indication, we can draw some conclusions from that. Christ appeared and reappeared. He, or disappeared. He showed up in the room when the doors were locked. He hid his appearance and made himself recognizable, essentially on command. He had a spiritual body, and we are going to have a spiritual body as well. So what does that mean exactly? Well, it's a body outfitted for the spiritual realm. Right now, we're stuck. If we want to go to the beach, you have to load up the family, jump in an automobile, and drive hours to get to a beach, okay? Um, we're bound to whatever capacity the, the physical world keeps us bound in right now. So the laws of physics. But one day in our new existence, our new spirit body, the laws of physics in this earthly realm will no longer apply. Apparently, if we're like Jesus, perhaps we'll be able to travel through the unending reaches of new creation that God prepared for those that love him. I mean, that, that thought is amazing to me. We, we, some of us like those shows like Star Wars and, and Star Trek and, you know, all of that. And we, we love the idea of exploring strange new worlds and all of that. Well, maybe we'll get to explore strange new worlds, right? But, but just incredible thought of what potentially could be. All in a body that transcends what we know it to be now, a body that operates in the unending capacities of the power of the Spirit of God. 
Perhaps travel will be as simple as wherever my mind goes, I go. So if I want to be at the beach, then boom, I'm at the beach. Who knows? But it's fun to think about. You may think I'm being far-fetched, but hold the judgment till we get to the end of the passage here. Paul started his case with the seed analogy. <coughs> Excuse me. Then he discussed various forms of bodies in their different manifestations. Then he argued the contrasts of the earthly body versus the spiritual one. And the last part of Paul's argument here kind of reaffirms what I've just been talking about that will be like Christ. These are the examples he gives of what we could call the prototype for an earthly body and a prototype for the resurrected body. Verse 45 to 49. Verse 45, beginning there. Man, Adam, became a living soul. So there's your earthly prototype, if you will. He's a natural man, Adam, created in this physical world, in the flesh. Then he gives us the prototype for the spiritual body. The last Adam became a living spirit. The last Adam, of course, is Jesus. We've talked about that. He came to restore everything that Adam lost in the fall. So Paul refers to him as the last Adam. And he goes on to draw a contrast between the two. Verse 46. However, the spiritual is not first, but the natural. Then the spiritual. The first man is from the earth, earthy. The second man is from heaven. As is the earth, earthy, so also are those who are earthy, and as is the heavenly, so also are those who are heavenly. And just as we have been born in the image, the icon, an exact representation of the earthy in Adam, we will also bear the image of the heavenly. Okay? So right now we look like Adam, earthy. Later on, we're going to look like Christ, heavenly. Does that make sense? That's what he's saying here. In our resurrected bodies, we will be changed and transformed no longer like the first Adam, no longer bound to the physics of this world, and we will be like the last Adam, Jesus, with our new spiritual bodies. So it's not a stretch to expect that we will have the same type of resurrected bodies as Christ himself. It will be, as I said before, just, just as an encouragement, incorruptible, glorious, and powerful. Jesus was recognizable when he wanted to be Again, he ate all of those things. They could touch him. He, he told Thomas to touch him. And when he ascended, he flew up, he flew up, up and away, basically. And this is one of the things that some folks, in considering eschatology, they call this like the mystical spaceman. They call, they call Jesus the mystical spaceman, as if it's difficult to believe that Jesus could just launch himself and ascend into heaven. You know, like there, there are scholars, biblical scholars, who doubt this. And there are different reasons why, perhaps varying eschatological views. But Acts 1.11, if you look at Acts 1.11, there are these angels there. Jesus just ascended. And they say, this Jesus, who's been taken up from you into heaven, will come in just the same way as you have watched him go into heaven. To me, that means that Christ is going to return literally in the exact same way that he ascended in that moment. He sits at the right hand of the Father. He awaits the time in which he will return in exactly the same way as he left. We'll meet him at the air, in the air at that time. And those of us who are still alive, our bodies will be instantly changed into the same form that he has. So if you want hints as to what that will be like, just read all the passages about Jesus after he was resurrected. And you'll see the attributes of his glorified body. He is the first fruits of the resurrection. The prototype, as I said, and God will reproduce that prototype 
millions and millions of times over in the harvest in that full resurrection. We will have a body just like his, the same spiritual attributes. We won't be a God, okay? We're not going to be a God. We are, we'll never be eternal. He's eternal. We are going to be immortal. So we, we started on this earth. He never started. Does that make sense? He's always been. We're immortal. He's eternal. We'll never reach even close to where God is. And that's really important to understand. But we will, in our res resurrected body, we will reflect His glory. This is the body God has lovingly prepared for those who love Him. And so my question this morning, as you think through these things, as you consider these things, will you be one who will rise to receive that spiritual body? Scripture tells us that you will only receive this body if you are in Christ. If you are in Christ. And if you're not in Christ, the only alternative that we find in Scripture is the judgment spoken of in John 5 that I spoke of earlier. You will be resurrected uh, in a glorified body, but you'll be resurrected to judgment and then prepared for eternal destruction. So what does it mean to be in Christ? Well, Paul, speaking of the church in Ephesians 1.4, this is what it says. This is not my opinion. This is Scripture. He chose us in Him before the foundation of the world that we would be holy and blameless before Him in love by predestining us to adoption as sons through Jesus Christ to Himself according to the good pleasure of His will. You see, it starts with Him. It ends with Him. It's all about His glory. There are things that are difficult for us to understand, but the bottom line is, folks, do we trust God? And God tells us that He uh, chose us in Him before the foundation of the world. And so you may ask the question, well, well, then how do I know if I'm one of those people who were chosen? Well, do you look at your life and your past? Do you look at your sin? Is it something that you giggle about and chuckle about and you think is funny? Or are you broken by your sin? If you do a stock of, take stock of all of the things in your life, of the ways that you've fallen short of the glory of God, and you are an outright rebellion of God's holiness and God's glory, that one, one single sin would separate you from an eternal God for, for eternity. And that's what we have to realize. So we need to be broken and mournful and sorrowful about the things we've done in our past. Um, why? Well, for one thing, you're hopeless without Christ. And you need to be aware that it's that rebellion and that sinfulness that is the reason that Christ was brutally murdered on that cruel cross. Not only that, it's the reason your sin, your personal sin, is the reason that Christ took upon Himself the wrath of His own Father. He took the wrath of His own Father for your sake, because of your sin. And if you can look at that, and that breaks your heart, and you realize, I should have been there, I deserve, I deserve the cross, in fact, I deserve hell. If you feel the Lord making you keenly aware of your sinfulness, then it should bring what's called godly sorrow that leads to repentance. 
it should break you. And once you're broken, realizing your spiritual uh, situation, then you cry out to God and you ask Him for forgiveness and you put your faith and trust in Him. You repent and believe. It's that simple. So are you one of the chosen? Are you one of the elect? Will you repent and believe and make Christ Jesus your Lord? Will you make Him the priority of your life? Will you place Him on the throne of all your decisions and your future and all of that? If you're chosen, that's what you will do. And Jesus makes it clear. All who are weary and heavy laden can come to me. Whosoever will will come to me. And Jesus promises that that the Father draws them. and, And of all those that the Father has given to the Son, not one will be cast away or turned away. So if you come to Him, He'll accept you. But you have to repent and believe. Thanks again for joining us. If you'd like to visit us in person, we meet at 1015 every Sunday morning at the Glenpool Conference Center. You are always welcome.